Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer and producer Greg Penny. First of all, Amazon Music is now the fastest growing streaming music service. You would think it would be Spotify or Apple Music, and yes, those are both growing at a pretty good pace as well, but Amazon Music is the fastest. It's growing by over 70%. They don't release these figures, but it's been rumored that it now has over 32 million paid subscribers. In comparison, Apple Music has 60 million and Spotify is at about 100 million. One of the interesting things about Amazon Music is they recently introduced a free tier on all Alexa devices. They also have a discounted tier if you're using an Alexa device. And there's a rumor that they're going to have a high-fidelity, high-res tier coming soon, although that can't be confirmed. It's just a rumor, but I wouldn't be surprised. So Amazon is really growing. And of course, this was one of my predictions at the beginning of the year that Amazon would grow faster than most people realize and they become a real player in the streaming music business. And it looks like that's happening. Of course, one of the big reasons why they're a player is because of those voice actuated devices. And voice is a really big deal right now. And smart speakers are a really big deal. And that's pushing Amazon music faster than just about anything. One of the interesting things about Amazon is the fact that the people that listen to it tend to lean more towards country music than anything else. Now, if you look at the charts on Spotify, for instance, that's leaning more hip-hop. That's not the case on Amazon. So it will be interesting to see if that continues as Amazon grows. Part of it, I think, is the fact that so many of Amazon's subscribers and so many of the users of Amazon Music are Prime members. Prime members already have to spend a lot of dough, $100 plus, every year just for that. And that eliminates some of the audience. By the end of the year, we should know a lot more. And again, all these things in music pick up starting September. The fall is the heaviest use time for everything about music the heaviest consumption. So by the end of the year, we may have a different outlook on what streaming networks are actually going to be the leader of the pack going forward. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something that people never thought would happen. Aerosmith actually has a short-term residence in Las Vegas. Yeah, they're going to be at the Park MGM Grand, formerly the Monte Carlo, for those of you familiar with the hotel layout of Las Vegas, of the Strip. It's short-term in that they're only going to be there five to seven days a month. I think November, they're there for two weeks. But for the most part, they're out on the road and they're just in Vegas for short periods of time. That being said, the setup at the Park MGM Grand is way different from most concerts. In fact, this is a live, immersive audio experience. Most concerts have two or three line arrays above the stage, and that's what supplies everything you hear. 
Now, in this case, they're using something called the L-ISA, Immersive Hyperreal Sound from L-Acoustics. There's nine line arrays above the stage, 38 surround speakers mounted on the balcony edge, 22 overhead speakers, and 24 subwoofers. These are all permanently installed in the theater at the Park MGM Grand. What's more, it's all THX certified. There's the typical front-of-house mixer, but there also has to be a dedicated El Issa engineer. So for the immersive audio, there's a separate engineer just for that. What I think is particularly interesting here is that there's a VIP section which lets you sit on the stage. Now, if you opt for that, you get your own set of IEMs, in-ear monitors. These are the one more triple driver system. And they're connected to a custom iPod that's connected to a dedicated closed Wi-Fi system. You're able to select between either the house mix or Steven Tyler's mix. This is all put together by a company called Mix Halo. And Mix Halo recently was in the news by doing Elton John with this pretty much same setup, only it was out in the audience, where you could select between different mixes of members of the band. This is a little different, though, because if you're out in the audience, you're getting the immersive sound experience. If you're on the stage, you're paying a lot more money, and you're only getting the in-ear monitor experience. You're not getting 3D sound at all. These are fairly expensive seats in general. It goes anywhere between $178 to about $4,500 to be in the audience. On stage, you're going to pay anywhere between $822 and 2500 or so. Plus, you have a limited view and you won't have immersive audio, but you know what? You're going to be on the stage. So for many people, that's what they really want. So if you want to see and hear Aerosmith in a very unique environment, go experience them in immersive audio at the Park MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Now, speaking of immersive audio, my guest today is at the forefront of mixing music in Dolby Atmos. Greg Penny produced hits with Katie Lang, Cher, and Paul Young, among others. But a meeting with Elton John while Greg was in his teens turned into an award-winning journey with the legend many years down the road. Besides producing and mixing Elton's many albums in surround, Greg is now mixing them in the latest immersive audio format. And he'll tell us more about how it all works in just a bit. During the interview, we spoke about sitting in on Elton's Yellow Brick Road sessions, the difference between mixing in Atmos and 5.1, recording the Vatican Choir and Surround, and much, much more. I spoke with Greg via Skype from a studio in Ojai, California. For those listeners who don't know your background, let's start there because you have a, one of the most colorful and interesting backgrounds of anybody I know, actually. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. <laughs> so let's talk about how you get into the business. Well, I, I was born into a music business family. My father's name is Hank Penny. His name was Hank Penny. Uh, he was a um, band leader, songwriter, uh, extraordinary guitarist. And he started his career in Birmingham, Alabama, and then eventually worked his way to the West Coast, Hollywood. Uh, became a successful songwriter and comedian and met my mother, Sue Thompson, who was at that time singing in uh, Dude Martin's band in San Francisco. And they both together joined um, the Spade Cooley television show in Hollywood in the early 50s. Uh, as my dad as the stand-up comedian, guitarist, and my mom as the lead singer, 
And uh, soon after that, I came into uh, the picture. And then they, they took advantage of the, uh, of the, with the demise of regional television and uh, the business associated with that and the rise of national television, it put a lot of people sort of out of work. And my folks were on this, this regional television show in L.A. So they decided to follow the, the pattern of Louis Prima and Keeley Smith and go to Nevada and set up shop touring the Nevada circuit with the occasional trip into LA and other places. So, um, we moved to Nevada in, in the mid fifties when it was super alive and very active. And, uh, we were able to, to live up there. And then, uh, as, as time went on, my mother started having huge pop hit records, uh, and had to sort of abandon her cycle in the Nevada circuit and, and became, a um, a pop star at, again at you know in her mid 30s uh with records like sad movies always make me cry norman james those so um we we stayed in vegas but, but i was excited to come to la so by the time i was 16 i was basically re relocated to la and i worked for the dinah shore show for a while um as a production assistant a friend of mine got me a job there and that was a great gig because it put me around a lot of really really super creative people Everybody from Fred Astaire to David Bowie to it was pretty amazing. But my real my real want was to be a record producer. So I sought out a gig in the record companies and I got hired at Warner Brothers Music in L.A. as a song plugger or a professional manager. And as I moved up through that company pretty quickly, um, Rob Dickens, who ran Warner Brothers Music in the U.K., invited me to come to work for him in England. So I went to England to work for him on a label called Corova Records. That was the joint owner, a joint partnership between uh, Warner Brothers Music and uh, Seymour Stein at Sire Records. So we had Echo and the Bunnymen and the Sound, Betty Bright, a lot of the uh, the 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 camp that had moved down to London from Liverpool um, on our label, and um, I worked there for about two years for Rob. And uh, and then I decided that probably the best thing for me to do to push my career as a producer forward was back to L.A. So I came back to Hollywood and started producing. Uh, Westlake Audio used to give me time in the middle of the night um, there in the in the early 80s. And I would uh, I would do my demos or my semi masters and take them out to Warner Brothers and pedal them and see if I could get the artist a deal and me a deal producing. And eventually it stuck. And I produced this. Um, this record with a band called Martini Ranch that was Bill Paxton's band. And from doing that, um, I worked with Mark Thompson, who later and is currently known as Chocolate Genius. And then um, from that, uh, I got the Katie Lang job. I was introduced to Katie and uh, started working with her and did three albums and a bunch of things in between with her. And from that, um, I sort of rekindled an old friendship with Elton because he was a huge fan of her records. Um, knew that I was producing, but um, had never thought of me as a producer. So my intro to working again, or finally working with Elton after being friends for many years, was him calling me to ask me to do a duet with him and Katie. So we went, we Katie and I went along and saw him, and we concocted a, a, a cool arrangement on. Uh, a Womack and Womack song called um, Teardrops and did that together. And that led to me 
doing uh, the whole of the duets album with Elton. So lots of different artists I got to work with um, on that album. Little Richard and PM Dawn and Don Henley. Stevie Wonder did a Gladys Knight track. And, and then Elton asked me to produce his next studio album. So I went to England and started that. And then that, Elton kept me busy for about four years just doing his stuff. So there's there's been a lot of stuff, but it, but it's, it's you know it it's uh, it's been great. It's been amazing. And subsequently from that, the, the relationship because of Elton's longtime producer Gus Dudgeon passing away, um, unfortunately in the early 2000s, I think it was 2000. Um, there was no one in his camp that could really look after his catalog and to to, to start to repurpose it. And uh, you and I have talked about that catalog and listened through a lot of the stuff. Yeah. So um, I suggested that I that I start with things that I had produced since I knew them well, but that we eventually work through and try to do multi-channel mixes, 5.1 mixes, etc. And and um, you know, re repurpose the catalog, and that led to to actually going and and um, finding the master tapes in London, and then baking what had to be baked, you know, all the restorative stuff that comes with it. But we built an amazing digital archive of 12 of Alton's classic albums and sort of brought them out from uh, the vaults, really, because Universal at that time was, uh, his deal was with Polygram. And at that time, they hadn't really done anything. So we got those masters out and started working with them. And as you, as you know, we, we were able to... Uh, um, then have access to things if it was needed in a moment's notice. Like, and so his, his inclusion in films and film soundtracks and, and all these other things started to sort of have a little bit of a hockey stick ramp to it because the tracks were available to, to hand over to, to the people that needed them, you know, yeah, Sims, tracks, whatever we needed. So it's, it's really, it's been a good thing. It's yielded a lot of separate products, you know? Yeah. I still work in that, uh, in that area with him. Isn't that? I want to come back to that in a second, but take us back to Yellow Brick Road. Oh, okay. So um, my first contact with uh, Yellow Brick Road was, if you've ever seen the movie Almost Famous, I was like that young guy in Almost Famous. I, was, I lived in Las Vegas with my mom. Um, I was always going to the rock shows. I knew all the security guys, all the booking guys in Vegas, and I would, uh, I would just... I had no problem getting backstage to meet the bands that I wanted to meet and hang out. So, and at that time I was 15, 16 years old. So I, I introduced myself to Elton when he came to Vegas and I brought my mom with me and my mom had had these hit records that were huge in England. And so he was immediately floored. He was like, Oh my God, it's Sue Thompson. Uh. He was super excited. And, uh, there was a friendship that we struck up there. Um, and my mom loves Elton and, and, um, uh, so, so, that led to us communicating a lot at the time. And I wanted to go to Europe to go to school when I was 17. And I'd seen Elton in LA right after he's tried to start Yellow Brick Road at Bob Marley's studio in Jamaica. And as things would have it, they weren't able to really get it going. They spent a week or so down there and didn't even get a sound on tape. It was, it was frustrating for them. They, they moved at a different speed and there was a different tempo down there and they wanted to kind of crank out an album really quick. So uh, he came to LA to do promotion for Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. And 
told me that what he was planning on doing was going back to France to record at the Chateau where they had done Honky Chateau and Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. So he was going to go back again and see if he could get this album made as quick as possible. So I said, I, you know, I'm going to go to school in Europe, I hope, and I, I have to go interview at these schools. And he said, well, if you're going to be there, come by the sessions. Of course, you can, it blew my mind, right? So yeah. um, May of 73, I went to France and I was there for about the last 10 days of recording Yellow Brick Road. But the whole album, they weren't there any more than three weeks. So I was there for probably half of it. Um, they knocked that album out in about 20 days, 21 days. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, yeah. It's a track a day, almost completely. Yeah. So so um, I went back to England with um, Elton and stayed at his house in Virginia Water in Surrey for about six weeks after that. And I got to know a lot of people that I, that I had always wanted to get to know. You know, I got to know Gus Dudgeon better. I got to know David Henschel better. Um, it exposed me to, you know, being able to learn a lot about the record business at that time because Elton had set up Rocket Records um, in Wardour Street in Soho, and he was signing artists. Um, so, so I'm I met Dave Stewart for the first time. Then Dave was signed to Elton's label in a band called Long Dancer, um, who were um, Kai Olson, who's Nigel's brother, Nigel Olson's brother, Elton's drummer was the uh, guitarist in the band and Dave was the other guitarist. So at this early stage, I was seeing, you know, what, what ended up becoming rock royalty, you know? Yeah. And then you fast forward to the future. And when we started doing the surround mixes and thinking about repurposing his catalog, I started on made in England, which was an album that I had produced with him in, in London in 1994. And I thought that that would be the obvious thing. And it wouldn't, nobody would sort of question what I would do with that creatively. Um, so I got two or three songs into it, played it for management. Elton was on the road doing the Billy Joel Elton tour. And he rang me in London and said, how's this sound? And I said, I think everybody's digging it. It sounds really good because I've gone for a playback over there. And he said, listen, I've been talking to UMG at the time, Polydor, or uh, what was forming as UMG. And he said, you know, I really think you should just drop it and start with Yellow Brick Road. And I was just, I was when they picked me up off the floor, the first thing I did was I got in the cab and I went to the vault. And I would love Jane Hitchens. She's a sweet lady that ran the vault at uh, in uh, Maida Vale in London. I just showed up and said, I'm here to get the multi-tracks for Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And she was like, what? You know, <laughs> who are you? Um, she was wonderful. Anyway, uh, I eventually convinced her. And uh, it's funny because Lucian Grange, who is, uh, you know, the managing director, well, the CEO of UMG for the world now. Sure. <laughs> he sent a car for me. And he, cause, and he sent a car. And he said, I'm going to, I'm bringing you to my office. And I went in and he talked sternly to me. He said, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but you know, we, we have a plan for all these things. And it was great. It was, I, I set him at ease and we went back to air studios and um, we got the tapes. We went back to air and when we brought them in in a trolley, it was me and Andy Strange, my my buddy who's who was helping me at the time, uh, Air Engineer, George Martin and Giles Martin, standing in the lobby of Air Studios in Hampstead, scratching our heads going, what are we gonna, how are we going to do this? <laughs> and it was really cool because George and Giles were sort of, well, you know, you could do this, you could do that. And 
So we just started playing with it. And it ended up being, uh, that was the first 5-1 album that I ever did. And it, it won a lot of awards and it was uh, really, really, really well received. And, uh, and I just finished doing it in Atmos. Let's go to Atmos. Okay. Well, you had all this experience in Surround and 5.1, and I would assume that helped you when it came to Atmos. But I don't know if that's true or not. No, it's, it's, it's a different beast. There's a lot more going on in Atmos, and there's a lot more. It's an extremely powerful environment to work in. By virtue of the fact that you can you, you start big, and you can derive almost any type of output mix that you need from within the renderer that's doing all the work for you, placing the not only the the tracks or the bed tracks, which would have been sort of the basis for for the original five one seven one nine one type mixes. It also gives you the capability to use objects which are non-track based. They are non-track based audio track audio files that are impregnated with uh, metadata. And the renderer, whenever it's played through the renderer in a theater, in a home environment, it then knows where to put that data. So it goes beyond track count. You have, you, if you had a 7.1 bed, for example, you could have as many as 118 objects. Wow. Which the film guys love because it gives them the ability to move a lot of stuff around. The concept behind it is that you're not baking in when you mix, you're not completely baking in all the stuff. So if you want to go back and change something, it's very easy to do. It allows you to, as I said, start big and then output 7.1, 5.1, LCR, stereo files from that master in, in one pass. Wow. Uh, you can output stereo, you can output binaural headphone mixes. So it's extremely powerful to mix within because once you set that mix up, it's very, very easy for you to go back and alter something. And it translates? It translates great. Yeah. Yeah. So you mean the fold downs? Yeah. Yeah. It fo yeah. It folds down great. And additionally, uh, when you need to up mix something into Atmos, um, if you have ever done that, if you've ever taken a stereo track and then unfolded it, you can actually play with that type of scenario. And in Atmos, there's something, some pretty magical stuff that happens. And you don't get a lot of um, residual sort of artifacts from it or phasing problems. I find it a really, really great environment to work in. My first Atmos mix, I didn't know how to approach it at all, you know, because I, I just couldn't imagine the concept of that many possibilities. So I, I had been talking to um, Andy Nelson, the great re-recording engineer who is, uh, he does, uh, he has a room at Fox and he does Jim Cameron's films and Spielberg's films and um, the Star Wars films, the like. Um, he had just put in an Atmos system in his room at Fox. And we were having dinner one night together and he said, Greg, I got to show you this new sound system I've got. And this is five years ago now. So this is early 2014. And so I went down to Fox. I took my son Felix with me. We went down to Fox and Andy played me all these demos for Atmos and I was blown away. And at the end of it, I said, you know, that's amazing, man. I wish I had these tools to play with. He said, you do have these tools to play with and you should do something in the music space with this. So, of course, I'm thinking, how can I do this? And I came up with a few ideas. So we went to Dolby 
and we proposed that I remix some Elton tracks from the multi-tracks. And they, they suggested a couple of different ways that I could prep the tracks so that the mixing process would be easier. For example, make stems that have EQ and compression on them already, bring those files to Dolby. So we went to Burbank to Dolby's screening room where they had a full Atmos setup. And Brian Pennington, who is one of the house guys with Dolby, who normally sits on the set or the mix set with um, the likes of Andy and other mixers like Paul Massey. Brian helped me through it, and he really enlightened me as to how to use Atmos. So probably we spent a long day mixing a couple of different tracks of Elton's in Atmos. And everybody loved it. So my suggestion, of course, was, and having having had been there already and gone to the major labels to repurpose things in 5.1, et cetera, et cetera, I suggested that we start that process. It was not really within Dolby's model at the time with Atmos to do that, and they had to they had to figure out how to allot the, the manpower to doing that and what it would mean. So there was a long period where the, nothing happened. You know, we were playing the track for people. We were playing other tracks for for folks, but uh, it was mostly film things uh, or you know these the trailers that are condensed sound effects and things, mm-hmm. helicopters, you know, all the stuff that you do sure. in in that kind of format. Um, until two years ago, when I got a call from Barrack Moffat at UMG, and he said to me, "Man, I've heard the Rocket Man mix and." We want to know what you're doing and what you want to do. So I went in to see him and he said, we've put together this room at Capitol that's an Atmos mixing room now. And we want to make records this way. So would you come and make records with us? And I said, of course, this is what I've been wanting to do. So um, uh, we started in and um, we're moving through a lot of the UMG catalog to create enough content to eventually um, to take through a lot of different exhibition mediums as premier sort of versions like Jaws Martin mixed Sgt. Pepper in Atmos and it was played back in 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 the black theaters in in a dark room. Um, we uh, Jaws also did the NXS kick album uh, and I've done tons of mixes. I, I as a matter of fact. Uh, an interesting gig for me was they UMG asked me to go to Rome to record the Vatican Choir in the Sistine Chapel. Wow. So, uh, and the purpose of it was to create an Atmos experience where you feel like you're in the Sistine Chapel. Wow. So, um, a little over a year ago, I went to, to Rome and we did that. We recorded a, uh, a Christmas concert of the Vatican Choir. Okay. Did you approach that differently? In terms of recording, knowing that it's going to go to Atmos rather than any other format. Well, typically, I would be and 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 the and the the, the, the likes of me, other engineers would uh, they would source their material from a pop multi-track, and then they would they would basically make some judgment calls about how to place things, how they they want the reverbs to sound and stuff like that. But with the Sistine Chapel thing. I was very, very lucky to work with a, an extremely talented classical engineer named Stefan Flock, who's based in Berlin. He's of the Emil Berliner studio team. So he met me there, we, and we talked about it in advance. We decided that we wanted to create a mic plot that would be 16 microphones. So, so basically using 
two Fostex field recorders. Uh, we would record at 192, and we would place the mics in a certain position in the room, which would be much greater than what he would normally do if he was recording in there, because he had recorded a couple of earlier choral concerts there. So what my what I had hoped that it would be in the end would be like if you were standing in the center of the Sistine Chapel, you would basically hear the mics as they were in the room, and that would make it feel as though you were exactly in the room. I wasn't sure if it would come out, but sure enough, it did. And we used a we used a Sennheiser Ambio mic to get height yeah. and to get that reflective stuff from the ceiling and the cupola as the walls, and it's all marble. I mean, if you've ever been in it, it's it's phenomenal. It's even weirder to be in there by yourself. That's what's. There was a couple of minutes where where I was actually in there alone, and thinking, "Wow, you know, this is incredible." It's really a beautiful sounding room, and um, and and the end result was that it it feels like you're in the Sistine Chapel. So we we mixed the entire hour and a half show, um, and it just it came out amazing. And we shot it with. Uh, six um extended range uh, 4k cameras and it's just beautiful wow it came out really 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 good there's one area of it that was rather interesting that not many people will ever hear and that was that that the night of the performance at a rehearsal night and a performance night the night of the performance we weren't aware but cecilia bartoli the the wonderful italian mezzo soprano came to sing this thousand year old song called Bita Vescara, and she was the featured soloist for the evening. But they had not told us that the night before. There was a guy that sang it the night before. So, And they get their pitch from just, you know, the, the soloist will, will determine the pitch with the first few lines, and then the choir master will feed that pitch, like, you know, to the choir, and they'll, they'll go from there. But in this case, she showed up and said, I don't want to be filmed, but it's the first time that a woman had sung in the Sistine Chapel. So we recorded it, and it's amazing, amazing. Wow. That sounds like a wonderful experience. I can't wait to hear it, actually. Oh, yeah. I'll play it for you. Yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And so, so the good thing about UMG is that we have some mechanisms where we can push these things out. So when, when the cut came back for the visuals, we remixed the audio at Capitol, in the Atmos room at Capitol. Nick Reeves and I, and a couple of days to, to work on it, to, to sort of make sure that um, there weren't any, uh, sort of the segues in between the pieces weren't um, too noisy. There was a lot of ambient noise in the room. The, the performance was done in front of about 100 bishops, and they're not thinking that there's a recording going on, so they're moving around in their chairs and stuff like that. So if, in between the performances, we tried to mitigate a bunch of that. But um, the good thing about UMG is that we have, it's owned by Vivendi, and Vivendi also owned Canal Plus. So Canal have a channel in Europe that is a high-res streaming channel for video and audio. So they launched that uh, service by um, playing on consumer devices the version of the Sistine Chapel piece that we did in Rome, in a room with journalists. So they played it as though it would be streaming into your home. And uh, it worked out really, really good. So it's it's streaming on that channel in Europe right now. And then we've started doing, uh, UMG and Dolby announced their partnership 
about 10 days ago. Um, but it's actually been, we've been active at making tracks against the delivery of the format for a little over a year now. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that. Who is the ultimate consumer here? And we both know there is a problem with 5.1 in that, first of all, there wasn't an audience like everyone thought there was going to be. And then the fact of the matter is, when someone would buy a 5.1 system, it wouldn't be calibrated properly, and we'd have speakers that'd be in other rooms and all sorts of craziness like that. So Atmos is another level of complexity still. How does that play into it? Well, I think I think that that Dolby and their partners, uh, their electronics partners, even even Apple, are trying to come to an agreement about first the format, so there aren't too many format wars, but also Atmos does a much better job of uh, determining with your receiver what your speaker placement and playout is. So, in other words, if you're if you're in your home and you decide to stream Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in Atmos, but you only have a 5.1 system, it does a very, very good job of taking those elements and knowing where to put them within a 5.1 system rather than an, a full Atmos system. Um, whereas, I guess, Elliot, Elliot Shiner used to say, you know, that the coefficients just don't work when you do fold downs, you know. Yeah. But in, Atmo, in the case of Atmos, um, I test it. In, in my mixes anyway, I test it pretty thoroughly before outputting and I'll make some adjustments if I feel something isn't quite fitting into the suitcase, you know, mm -hmm. down and it, it seems to work really well. So for the consumer, I think that they, there, there is a little more enlightenment out there because Atmos has now been in the cinema world for about eight years, really actively. And a lot of people understand it when they're when they're looking, you know, when they're watching their films and stuff. When um, Apple announced the inclusion of Atmos in their um, current 4K Apple TV, that was a big moment because they were talking about all of the Apple Music product. Eventually, if if it was an Atmos mix, being able to be pushed through that. Same with same with the electronics manufacturers. So now that the, the we're at the point now where we've captivated some hearts and minds with the format, with um, the experience um, of listening to music in Atmos. And now we need to do the, I guess, the educational part of it to, to show the consumer that it, it can be easier than you think. Um, I know for me, my Atmos rig didn't take me very long to set up at all in my studio. Once, once I grokked it, you know, I just... It was quite easy, and it plays back fine. It's uh, it's very good. So it's, I think that I think that there'll be a place for it. I think the ease of being able to buy or, or stream your product online uh, will will help. Uh, you're not, you're probably you know th th there's there's there was a lot of well do I buy the SACD or the DVDA or do I do this or I do that with the previous formats. And I think that the competition between the two and the and the way that the um, the way that the labels license their material for those formats, I think it got confusing. It was sort of uh, consumer hostile. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping that that um, that Atmos doesn't end up being that way. I know there's a great drive to educate. There's a great drive within um, uh, the digital 
team who make these deals for the world once these titles come out at UMG, um, there's a great drive so that the consumer sitting in their living room can be educated. So I know they're working on all that now. What's the calibration like? Speaker calibration. Um, in terms of volume or in terms of just... Uh, Both, actually. Placement, level. Yeah. It's not unlike... Uh, okay, if you can imagine a 7.1 bed or a 5.1 bed. Let's, let's start with that. So if you imagine your normal 5.1 bed where you have a center channel, in my case, I always put my subwoofer behind the center channel just because I like... I like hearing this, the, the LFE information coming from the center of the room, yeah. kind of like a kick drum in front of you, bass in front of you. And then my, my monitors are out 30 degrees. My left and right are out 30 degrees from the center. And my surrounds would have normally been at something like 120 degrees. But with Atmos, you, you go much, you go further to the back of the room with your monitors. They don't exactly have to be right on the back wall. They don't have to be 180 degrees behind you, but they have to be, far enough back where you feel that that you have a back to the room. And then in 7.1, you're setting up side speakers. So that side can fill well between the front and the rear. Mm -hmm. And then with Atmos, because of it being object-based and adaptive, I don't have to worry if I want to put something, let's say, between the, the front left speaker and the side left speaker. If I want something to exist in space here, it's very accurate at putting it in that position and reproducing it in that position a little bit between the two speakers. And then because we have the overheads now, you have the ability to move that sound, uh, you know, in a vertical in a vertical manner. So you can actually put something sort of hovering in space up in the air to your left and the speakers will each take care of a little bit of that information. Now, if, it, if I then take my mixes to a room like Capital, where they have a 9.1.6 setup, there is a speaker that is in that position between the front left and the and the left side speaker in that format, mm-hmm. um, in that speaker format. But it'll reproduce exactly in that spot. And then if you blew it out, like we've done tests at the Dolby Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, which is, we're probably, there's probably 40 speakers in the room. And um, the accuracy, the pinpoint accuracy of where you're, um, information comes from is very, very good. Wow. So I don't think the consumer, you know, if you, if you, if you know enough to do a basic placement and there's lots of graphic illustrations online, when you Google, um, Atmos theater setup, mm-hmm. home theater setup, you should be able to, to view that and get an idea where to put your speakers. You don't always have to have, um, an elaborate system where you have the overhead suspended, uh, from the ceiling or something, you can also use, for example, Klipsch and Focal make speakers that have up-firing top speakers yeah. and you get a reflective image. Um, and they also come with a tuning device. So when you set them up, you put a microphone in the room and it will test, it, it'll do the delays and everything for you. Wow. So the, and the Klipsch and both the Klipsch and Focal that I've heard are very, very good. So you get the imaging from up, from your up speakers there is a dedicated up speaker, but it just so happens to be built into the top of your left, right. In this case, it's a 7.1.4. So it'd be your left, right, and rear left and right. And that, that up firing speaker does a really great job of, of bouncing off your ceiling and coming back down. Wow. Uh, as 
and if you want to take it down even lower, there's the Sennheiser sound bar is amazing. Um, it has some incredible, uh, up firing speakers in it that as a matter of fact, a lot of people feel that it, it gives a more, even a more dimensional feeling, um, than, than actually having the whole surround speakers. It is a, it is a wonderful, um, device so that though, you know, it's a soundbar that just sets in front of your TV yeah. or your system. And then there's a pod that, um, I was blown away by, and I'm not sure if it's going to be a branded, I'm really sure who the manufacturer is going to be, but I've seen a, a, you know, a white label version of it. Um, yeah. and it's, um, it has up firing speakers in it too. Not unlike the home pod, you know, where you have a, you have a, a whole array of speakers pointing different directions inside yeah. the thing. Phenomenal. It's really good. Wow. So it's, um, we're hoping, I mean, Sonos are working on, you know, this way uh, that they have of identifying if your amp is putting out Atmos and you've got um, your, your LCR in the front or, or you, you know, you've got your version of that with Sonos soundbar, whatever it is. And maybe you have a speaker in your dining room and a speaker in your kitchen. Those speakers can become another part of your whole Atmos setup if you want them to be, if you name them to be that. So they're working on that kind of technology. So when you're mixing, how do you approach the high channels then? That's a really, really good question. So there's, so there's various, there's various um, ways that you can do it. Um, within, so, so right now, Pro Tools is the master DAW for Atmos. So within Pro Tools, there are integrated Atmos tools. When you buy or acquire the uh, Atmos production suite, as a plugin, it's a $300 plugin that you can buy from the Avid site. You are given um, a renderer, Adobe renderer, and the panning tools that pop up within Pro Tools so that you can do all of the busing and assignments. Basically, what it does is it, it's, it's a busing configuration where you're taking your output channels that you would normally send to a device that captures it or maybe back into Pro Tools or you would bounce to disk. You're sending those channels to the renderer and the renderer is, like I said, impregnating those cha the channels that you're sending with the necessary data to know whether it's a bed channel or not, whether it's an object and where that object should be in space. Then it sends it back through to Pro Tools and it comes up another set of channels, which are your speaker control channels. It seems complicated, but in fact, once you get a template, it's super easy. Like now I can just, I can open my Atmos template and drop a multi-channel mix in, I mean a multi-channel tape into it, multi-channel recording. And uh, within a few minutes, it's coming out of all the speakers. I can put it wherever I want. So you, you, you can, there's several things, several ways that you can reach your upper hemisphere. On the panner that then is enabled from the Atmos plugin, you can use the a height feature. So basically it lifts it up. Now there are a couple of caveats when that happens. As with anything that has tons of things going on, you have some trade-offs that you have to do. So if you want, if you have a 7.1.4 system, for example, and you want to put something discreetly in the upper left front channel, um, if you use the height function in the home theater renderer, it will put it into the upper channel, but it will most probably also be in the rear channel. So it kind of sends it up, but it makes the entire upper hemisphere a stereo 
pair. Yeah, yeah. Now that's and that's when you use it from the high channel on a track bed, and that can be very effective when you just want something to feel like it's got some altitude to it. But if you want to be super discreet about it, you could turn that track into an object, and then you have discrete access to any speaker in the room or any position in the room. Yeah. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'll create geographical destinations in the form of objects. So in other words, I'll put objects in different places in the room where I know I'm eventually going to want to put a sound, or I'm going to want to get there and then come back out again. So for example, you can... You can also cut and paste or you can do like, let's say you had a track and you had a whole bunch of music and you wanted to synchronize um, the arrival of the sound rhythmically with the track in, diff in a different speaker each time. You could actually cut that up and just assign the sub stems that you would make from a master track, just cut it into rhythmic slices and then assign each of those slices to a, to a destination and it'll start playing that way. Oh. So there's there's all kinds of different ways that you can access it, but your real super discreet stuff should be an object. It it works the best. It's extremely accurate, and um, you know there's there's real good reasons why you want to do that. However, one thing that I will throw in, and maybe I'm I don't want to jump ahead of you, but bus compression in pop music is it's almost like it's almost like trying to cook without salt if you don't have bus compression. Right. You know, you got to have that. You got to have that thing. So one of the big challenges with Atmos that I found first first time I used it was how do I get that that punch? There's no bus. It's it's tons of tracks, you know, it's or an object. So I've got 10 tracks in a bed and then I've got 20 objects. That's a lot, you know. So what do you do? You you do you chain up 30 compressors. I mean, you can do that and, and key them off of something. Bus compression scheme is, is that's one of the big challenges, you know, where your objects are getting compressed with the whole track. So you get that breathing, but there, there's ways to do it. How about effects? Because that was one of the things in the early days of five, one, for instance, where we had stereo effects and it took forever to get 5.1 effects, and then it was like, well, okay, how do you actually deploy this? So how does it work in Atmos? Well, you can do a few different things. So there, I'll, I'll give you a couple of different scenarios. Um, and and um, the fun has been, I've been I, the fun at UMG has been that we've set up new rooms. So um, I get to go to these new rooms that we have set up and try new things, you know, every time. I tried something in Nashville recently at our Barry Hill, um, UMG bought the Barry Hill studio complex in Nashville that used to belong to the House of Blues. Mm -hmm. And we put two Atmos rooms in there. So one of the things that I tried was, uh, I don't know if you've used the Fab Filter plugins. Yeah, oh, love them. So I'll, I'll, I'll name brands, but that's yeah. that's probably okay. Yeah. So the Fab Filter plugins are wonderful, and they make a wonderful reverb, a wonderful stereo reverb. So what I did is I just created a single send single um, send from Pro Tools into um, four different stereo channels of the FabFilter reverb. And then I positioned the return of the reverb. If you can imagine the room as four slices that you have a, you have a horizontal plane reverb in front of you, and then you have a reverb that's maybe a, a little bit more vertical. Maybe it's, maybe it's predominantly in your front overhead Atmos speakers 
and then it goes back and it's in your rear outmost speakers. And then the fourth instantiation of the reverb would be in your wall in the back. And then you set the pre-delay, you set the pre-delay times gradually longer and you set the decay gradually longer. Yeah. When you hit that reverb, it washes past you like a wave. Wow. And it's super subtle, but it all of a sudden gives you this sense that sound is traveling past me, you know? So things like that can be super easy to set up in Atmos. And you can just assign them to object destinations if you want. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal thing. And then you could, you know, if you really want to get crazy, you can take those reverbs and start to move them. You can do you can do quite a lot within that. But that way you get this feel. I I like some of the five one reverbs in my system six thousand. So what I've done is I've set up a a um like an upper hemisphere return on the 6,000. So I get this kind of this feeling of reflections that are going between the upper area. Like there was maybe an, a, you know, a, an upper part of the room that's not particularly geometrically perfect. That's bouncing around. And that gives you this subtle feeling that there's, that it's not just a box above your head. Yeah. It's, it's actually, you know, kind of splashing around, which is pretty cool. How long does it take you to do a mix? Is it faster than, than stereo or is it slower? It's slower. Uh, now, now you could you could rip you could tear into it and try to if you were on um, a, you know a deadline and you needed to keep to a certain deadline. We've worked out some ways that you can prep for Atmos. So the best thing to do is be prepared. You know, take your tracks if you if your tracks are in stereo already, make them as ready for atmos as possible in other words maybe do your basic rides do your basic compression eq stuff like that and have it all ready so that it's playing back well in the stereo field and then you can just start to move it around and that's that that's the fastest way to get started start to assign it to different places so you're talking pre-mixes basically you're doing stems yeah yeah it's it stems but but i i almost never go back and create for example i wouldn't do a drum group stem like a stereo drum group for Atmos. I want all the, I want everything to still be discreet so that I can, I can move it around a little bit if I want. Um, and it is really nice working with the absolute, you know, everything in, in the original multi-track pieces when you're in Atmos, because, uh, there, there just seems to be something that happens to the, to the whole imaging that's, that's bigger. It's, it's great to be able to go in and fine tune the hi-hat or something like that, or take the kick and play with it. When, if they were, if they were put into a, a stem, it would be a little bit harder for you to get in and do that. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it can take, uh, you could probably do a, an Atmos mix a day if you really were on it. I've spent, <laughs> I've spent four days on a mix. I did, um, I did a version of start me up by the stones and I didn't have any notes. And but I think the way that Bob originally mixed it, Clear Mountain mixed it, and I think the original record. And I think the way that he mixed it was using the cut buttons on the SSL. There was a ton of, I mean, that album was cobbled together. It was outtakes, and Mick had gone to Paris and uh, over the course of about six weeks put, made an album out of a bunch of outtakes. And so it was not, to start with, it was a bit of a mess. So on 16 channels, so to, to actually make it work, uh, you need a guy with a mind like Bob. So, I mean, Bob probably knocked that mix out in no time, and it just sounds amazing. But to to replicate Bob's mix in Atmos for a project that we were doing, it took me a few days to really figure out where everything was, make sure it played back in the same way, and then make it bigger. 
So that's that's the challenge. The challenge is repurposing things in Atmos that are going to have the same impact or more on the listener. And there's such subtle things in these classic historic records that you really got to get them. You can't you can't just fake it. You got to really get them right. Yeah. So that's that's one of my goals when I started Atmos Mix is it's got to be it's got to be as good or better than the original mix. But that's always been the problem with that because so much goes on in mixing that's like you say undocumented. What reverbs were used, what effects were used, and you have to hunt to figure this stuff out. So yeah, I I know it, it's it can take forever. Or Ken's things, where Ken Ken Scott's things, where yeah. Ken would be with Gus in the control room mixing Tonky Chateau, and he would. You know, it'd be six hands on the desk doing rides, and you've got to chase that in your now in your Atmos mix of it. And they were doing Dolby stretch tricks and all kinds of stuff, and yeah. you, you no notes on any of that. It was late, and somebody just decided the vocals would sound better if we popped the Dolby out. You know, whatever. But you can't find that stuff. So yeah, yeah, right, right. They mixed in seconds too, but I but I think I think um, that is the game. It's fun for me. I I, I kind of almost it's like a. A challenge you know to do it yeah it it is it is an incredibly creative form what i'm trying to encourage artists that i talk to about it is to write in the format write using atmos write monitoring back out of atmos in a setup that has the speakers so that you can really start to feel you know a new and i think beck is interested in doing that actually because he's been at capital quite a lot lately uh checking in on it yeah. So I think he's I think he's got an idea. <laughs> Very cool. All right, Greg, last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you've either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? I think you've got to stick to it and understand that if you're going to work in the music business, there are going to be oscillations of success and oscillations where you feel like you're on a desert island somewhere and that nobody is returning your calls, nobody's there when you and when you call out, I think the thing is learning how to ride the oscillations of the business and zooming out far enough, if you can, if you can do it, to see the big picture and to hopefully say, I'm here to last. And I know there's going to be changes. There's going to be uh, changes in the industry, changes in the technology, changes in your, uh, you know, if you're if you're a talented person who is trying to do things. Um, you know, there's all the adages that come with it. Like, you know, find me this guy, who's this guy, you know, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, I think really it's tenacity. It's sticking to it and really, really work at your craft, really try to be good at what you do. And, and you can say in the long run, it was a pretty good ride. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them at questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.